Hi, and thank you so much for joining us on Divine Downloads today. I'm your host, Cassandra Bodzak, and we have a really juicy episode for you. We're celebrating World Refugee Day, and I'm introducing you to one of my clients, Michelle Damasi, who wrote the book, Hope, Solidarity, and Death at the Australian Border, which is all about the Christmas Island asylum seekers. And the the story that we're going to talk about today is not only raising awareness for the asylum seeking and refugee journey, but also a story of soul calling. And one of the things that I love so much about Michelle and having worked with Michelle is how clear her soul calling is and how she follows it with such lightness, with um, such faith and leaning on her intuition and her spiritual journey. And so I want you to listen to this podcast with an open ear, both for the juicy lessons that are there for you as you follow the path of your soul's calling, and also to learn more about what's going on with asylum seekers and refugees. Um, so without further ado, let's talk to Michelle. to have you here today. Um, obviously, I've adored you and working with you. And what I'm really excited to share with my listeners is not only about the refugee crisis and the situation on Christmas Island that you write so beautifully about in your book, but also I think one of the things I want to start off with is how, you know, when I was reading the book and and it was also evident, obviously, as soon as I met you and just speaking with you, but reading the book, I feel like it just like seeps out of the pages, how much this is like your soul calling on earth (laughs) and that it was so divinely led. And I think a lot of people wonder about that, right? Like wonder, like, what is that journey of like finding a soul calling? How do I know when I'm called to it? And one of the things that my impression was from you and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that I feel like you, you took to it like a fish to water, right? So tell us a little bit about how did you come to this soul calling around your work with refugees? And I'm really curious, was there any resistance to the calling? Or did did you really take to it like the fish to water, like it seems to me? (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Cass. Well, I would say definitely a fish to water with this. It's I, even when I have tried to step away from it, um, it always comes back to me. And, you know, what was so interesting about when I um, wrote the book and began the research for the book, which, you know, originally this was a, a PhD thesis and I'd planned to go to Christmas Island. And at that time, there were no refugees there. There was no one in immigration detention. And, you know, I even made some remarks that, you know, I would write this historical thesis, but wouldn't it be you know, interesting if some refugees turned up while I was there. What happened three weeks later, boats started arriving with refugees. So, you know, it was... I know, obviously people said, well, you knew something that we didn't know. And, you know, every time I have have felt that like, okay, what do I do next here when it comes to refugees? Support has always dropped in, help has always dropped in, you know, whether it's been guidance as to, you know, how to go about giving hope to people and alleviating situations to even, you know, financial aspects where I may have needed to financially support people, whether they were, you know, in places like Afghanistan or in immigration detention. So it's something that I haven't been able to ignore. And, you know, it's it's, it's really interesting what happened to me back, you know, before I started even going to Afghanistan in, in 2010. At that time when I was living on Christmas Island, um, you know, I and I was helping uh, refugees that were in the detention centre, I was had this program where, um, you know, people from mainland Australia would send books to the island because there was not much for people to read while they were waiting for their detention cases. And I kid you not, this 
book turned up and it was called something like trusting your intuition or no <laughs> understanding your intuition and I literally was like that book's coming with me <laughs> I didn't steal it from the refugees but I was like I feel like I need to read this book and it was you know it was about six weeks before I was to go to Afghanistan and so I've always said you know with my soul journey on that is always being able to listen to my intuition um you know and particularly being somewhere like Afghanistan you know where I didn't speak the language very well and you know I was a female there by herself um you know I had to often listen to my intuition and understand what was happening so to answer your question it's always been this calling and you know just things things just continue to happen that you know you and just can't when, make this up <laughs> when when did what was like the first spark of being interested in Christmas Island and the refugee refugees yeah yeah so I originally went to Christmas Island um I think it was back in 2005 uh, funnily enough my mother was living there um she'd gone there after my parents had divorced actually and so it was quite a far away place for her to go but I went to visit her and at that time um I remember going into this little uh video store you know I think that was selling like the old school tapes to, <laughs> to watch videos on and they also was had photos being displayed there and there were these pictures that I saw where there were refugees arriving by boat and I saw Christmas Island people going out into the water and were saving them and um, you know this and so that sparked my curiosity but there's also was a, another event that was happening at that time which was um, the Australian government was building a maximum security immigration detention facility on Christmas Island that was able to house over a thousand asylum seekers including women and children um, in what was being termed Australia's Guantanamo Bay. So I was able to um, see that under construction. Um, I was particularly concerned about what this meant for refugees. You know I had known through you know obviously my studies at university that refugees obviously was always suffering things like uh, you know post-traumatic stress disorders and what you know a plethora of different issues um, and then they were going to be locked up in this big maximum security facility now this was a facility that had electric fences around it it had um, down to it was so well thought out that even um, you know hooks on the back of the doors would if there were too much pressure would collapsed down so people couldn't hang themselves in these places so you know there were baby change tables so I became really concerned about you know okay I don't know so much about refugees but ethically and morally this is this is wrong so that's where my interest began and then um I continued to uh, complete an honours thesis um, in Australia, which led to a PhD. Um, and then over that time, you know, I would say there was the interest. I wasn't so actively involved with the refugees, but as I said at the start, you know, people started arriving by boat. And then, you know, at that time, we'd had a change of government in Australia and the government was claiming that um, women, uh, sorry, children would no longer be locked up in immigration detention. And what they'd moved them to this smaller facility. And what was problematic for me was that they were saying, well, they're not locked up, but there was padlocks on the doors and, you know, on the front gate, there were security guards there. And there was also a playground adjacent that the refugee kids would have to look out to that couldn't actually oh. go out and, 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 you know, play there. So I was like, mm, you are still locking up kids. The government though, at that time um, was somewhat um, a lot more, uh, you know, I would say they, they had realized what had happened in the past historically with a, with asylum seekers that you know the, the policies were really brutal and harsh so they had there was a softening of policy I then as a writer published an article about um, you know these new immigration detention values but said look I've still something's not quite right here because kids are still locked up the immigration department um, uh, actually allowed me to come inside the detention center and said you can come and meet with with some of these asylum seekers. So there was definitely a, um, a spirit of being more transparent. So I went there and then 
you know, I hadn't spent any time with refugees. And I said, well, what would you like me to do? How can I help? And they said, we'd really love to learn about Australia. And so I said, okay, I will, I will come in here, you know, a few hours a week and I'm going to teach you about, you know, Australia. And it gave people for that two hours a week hope that they one day they would be transferred off Christmas Island to mainland Australia. But, you know, it didn't stop there and, you know, the numbers kept increasing and then I decided that I needed to, um, you know, I needed to establish an NGO to help people on the island and I needed to connect mainland Australians with these people that were technically out of sight, out of mind and out of rights. So what happened was um, we did something as simple as a letter writing program. So I was matching Australians who wanted to write with asylum seekers in the detention centre. And so people were now writing and sending phone cards and doing all different things like that. And that was one way I could really try to close the gap. And, you know, some of those uh, friendships that were formed through this were you know just insane like I always remember this one story of this woman who contacted me and she said oh the Sri Lankan man that I've been writing to um he's been uh been rejected for his refugee case he needs to make an appeal he needs a migration lawyer but my um my son has just been given three weeks to live he has a brain tumor and I'm a little bit busy right now like do you think you can deal with this and I've said of course we can deal with this you know we can do that but you know if my goodness focus on your your son then about a year later I received this email from this woman and she said you know my son knew how passionate I was about helping refugees and trying to help this man in his will he has left everything his apartment everything to this Sri Lankan man yeah so he could be set up in Australia and and you know he knew it would make his mother really happy so you know you just there were always these events cast that would happen where you knew this is the right thing to do this is just keep going this is the sole mission just keep going well you know I think one of the words that came up a lot um which is actually perfect kismet because I just did this other podcast interview um a few weeks ago with this man, Gary Temple Bodley, right? Who is like a channel, kind of like Abraham Hicks kind of channel. And one of the things he talked about on it is that sometimes we get confused with following our joy when our joy is actually sometimes like our interest, right? Mm. And and you use that word like, I was just interested, right? I was just interested. And I think the thing I love about being quote unquote interested in something is that it's low pressure right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm interested in this. I want to learn more. I love that. Like when you started out, you would, you were like, I don't know, like, I feel really interested in learning more about this. And Mm. I don't know a lot about refugees right now. Right. And that's Mm. how, no matter what you feel called to do, we all start out. And I think if, if we put two, it's almost like for you, I feel like the soul calling of it kind of just unraveled over the years more yep. and more and more. And that allowed you, because when you were going into that video store, you weren't thinking like, I need to find my soul calling. No, <laughs> right? definitely not. <laughs> you know? Definitely not. And I think it's just such a beautiful reminder to everyone that we can follow the things that we're interested in and 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 just allow them to unfold and allow ourselves to it also speaks to that we have a culture right now I feel that everything is like your calling has to be directly related to your professional work right correct yeah I also love that in the beginning, I mean, granted, you were like a student, you're younger, mm. but like you weren't forcing this necessarily to be some sort of job. It was like, no, this is just something like, I want to know about what's going on here. I want to meet with this. I want to learn more about this. I want to figure that out. And I think that mm. that is just such, I just wanted to call that out in your story mm. because it was so apparent that you were kind of just following your natural interests. And then it kept Absolutely. on expanding on each level. 
Yeah, and I think that that's definitely been the case for me. Like it was, and I think sometimes people put so much pressure on themselves. Like they're like, okay, I need to do this, this, and this, and these are the steps. And yes, look, that 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 that's definitely fine. But you know, you know, and we talk about this a lot is allowing that space for things to unfold as well. Um, you know, and I really just continue to to play around with things. You know, even as a writer, um, you know, I it was. It was a similar case that happened in in 2015. I went um, to to Europe during the refugee crisis, and a good Afghan friend had said to me, um, "You know, look, Michelle, why don't you just go to Serbia? Like, why don't you go to Hungary and um, go have a holiday? Like, you're due, overdue for a holiday, but also just go see what's happening there with this refugee crisis. You know, you're interested in this. You've published before, but it was like." I didn't put pressure on myself like I was like okay you know I'm gonna go and if I find like I want to write something I will write something and you know it, it it all started unfolding and it was you know I still remember clearly Cass and feeling like this is a sole mission I was on the train from from Belgrade up to the border of um of, of Hungary and uh, Serbia to a place called Sabotnia and I was like 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 the the fire in your belly and your soul going this feels really really damn good right now like this is where I'm meant to be and this is what I love doing and you know and then I got up to the border and you know I remember going oh there's not that many asylum seekers anymore like okay maybe this was you know people have moved on or whatnot and then it was really funny because then I walked around the train station and I could hear people speaking in, in Dari and Persian. And it was a group of young Afghan boys who were then like, had been camping outside the train station. They'd made this makeshift tent and were living in it. And um, I said, you know, and I'd, by that stage, I'd learned a, a little bit of Persian from being in Afghanistan. And I said, oh, you know, I spoke a bit and I said, oh, what are you doing? And I got them to explain to me. And then from that, that actually formulated the back ground to a, a, one of my favorite pieces I wrote which was about unaccompanied Afghan kids seeking asylum in Europe and it just you know it it gained momentum and next like you know these kids are giving me their stories and then you know then it even escalated at that time um one of their their family members was back in Afghanistan and you know the Taliban had was unfortunately was had you know taken an area in Kunduz province and you know the brother is calling me from from Afghanistan and by then I've started to like build in more like this is the whole story of this kids seeking asylum but again it's that natural exploration where we don't put so much pressure on ourselves but we feel aligned yeah we feel really aligned I love yeah. that and how how long into your journey was that moment like how how many years had you been kind of following these interests before oh, you had that moment where you were like, oh my I mean, God. this, that had gone on for some years. I mean, that was just one example. I mean, another example was, you know, in, in 2010, when I decided to go to Afghanistan the first time, I mean, that whole story of how I even ended up in Afghanistan was just, you know, it, it, it started off, <laughs> I had one PhD supervisor who was really tough on me. And he said to me, you know what, Michelle, you'll never be an academic. So I suggest you go do an internship somewhere like the UN thinking I would go to, you know, Geneva or New York or something yeah. and I was like oh okay sure and then <laughs> and then it wasn't like that I ended up you know applying to an organization in Afghanistan that's where I felt called to go and so I did do that internship but the reason I'm telling you the story is what else happened in the lead up before going to Afghanistan was the Australian government had told all the Afghan asylum seekers that this, the situation in Afghanistan was now safe and that um, they would no longer be processing their claims for refugee status for six months because there was an improved security situation in Afghanistan. Now, I watched what happened that day when they gave that information to, to those asylum seekers and people's faces were so puzzled and were like, how can you say it's safe in Afghanistan? Now, I was planning to go to Afghanistan, but I thought to myself, you know, again, why don't I just see like what I can find out while I'm there? Maybe I can write something. 
And so what I did do, I did write an article and it was, you know, I investigated what was happening to, to the so-called improved security conditions. And, you know, people were showing me Taliban death threat letters. They were telling me different things and whatnot. And, you know, I was able to collate all that information and I published that article. And, you know, I w it was told back to me later by Australian immigration officials, migration lawyers, that that article was now being used as country information evidence to help Afghans claims for asylum. What was even funnier, it was wow. not funny, but, you know, these things yeah, happen. It yeah, it was also, it had been translated into Dari and, you know, was on some of Afghan websites and whatnot. And <laughs> Afghan asylum seekers were coming on these leaky boats with a printout of the article <gasps> and saying, Miss Michelle says it's not safe. And, you know, they were like, we've got also, this is some other evidence we've brought. And, oh you know, my so that gosh. quite a lot of people um, gain refugee status in Australia back then. And, you know, it was, again, I was not so clear. I had some loose threads of what I wanted to do, but you know, and then you just sort of go with that and see how it unfolds. And, you know, and the outcome was great for, for everyone that's involved in that. Oh, my God. So divine. And even the fact that you had your, you know, PhD, you know, overseer that kind of gave you a bit of resistance and, yep. you know, kind of brushed you off or whatnot. And you yeah. were able to be like, just alchemize that. <laughs> Like you exactly. just alchemized it, and we're like, I'm gonna roll with it. <laughs> oh, hold on, did I lose you for a second? Yeah. Oh, there you go. You're back. Frozen, but I've. Can you still see me? Okay, Kat. Oh, there you go. You're back. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yep. There okay. Go. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Um. So before we go even even any farther with that, I'm so fascinated by your own like soul calling journey with it. But I want to give some context to listeners about what is going on in the refugee mm. crisis. I know you focus on Christmas Island in your book, um, yep. but it's so much bigger than that. Yeah. And the a kind of a serendipitous thing that, you know, before you, we started working together and, and you came to me um, as a client uh, two years earlier, right before the pandemic, actually one of my last trips before the pandemic was... Um, to investigate the refugee situation in Greece and Germany. And I had the opportunity to meet with a lot of refugees, see the lifeboat graveyards, um, see the community centers as they were trying to assimilate and, and hear, oh my God, hear so many stories that were just I mean, stories that I think will be emblazoned in my mind for the rest mm. of my life. They were so intense and powerful. And, you know, it's pretty interesting because one, from that trip, it was a similar thing where there was an opportunity that arose and I just felt yep. called to yep. investigate it and I didn't overthink it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, let's just see what this is. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but I realized, and we talked about this briefly too, how isolated a lot of the rest of the world is from what's actually going on here mm. and doesn't really fully understand what's going on. And also the, the political back and forth of it, where, you know, from, for me, from like a humanitarian point of view, I'm like, yeah. how, do, how can we not? How can mm. we not like take these people in and, you know, yeah. but can you explain a little bit more mm. about the refugee crisis for someone that's not, not as familiar with what's going on? Yeah. Well, I, you make a really good point there as well, Cass, it, which is, you know, it's about actually being curious about what is happening and asking those questions. So I think that's the first thing. And I think sometimes people think, oh, I can't get involved with this because it's so complicated and it's quite, you know, it's really terrible and I, I might not um, be able to get involved or how would I even get involved? And I think something that, you know, that I quite like that happened on Christmas Island as well and I write about in the book is where just normal people take action 
you know, and it's think it's just normal people go, okay, well, this is something that's not great. And, but I want to know more and I want to learn more. So I think that comes back to, um, you know, we have a number of refugee crises happening around the world at the moment. You know, there's over 20 million refugees globally. There's 4 million asylum seekers and there's over 40 million internally displaced people. Now that's a lot of people. And I think that that you know, those numbers would be a bit higher now, obviously, with everything that's happened in Ukraine. So I think the first point is really coming to, you know, ask questions, you know, and, and don't be afraid to get involved. And so I think people, you know, you, there's different ways of, of doing this, you know, obviously, educate yourself with what's going on. And there's a number of resources, and I can talk to that. But I think, um, also, you know, just, I think just asking questions about what is happening and there's there's I know I kid you not in most places you go to there's something going on in a community or you know there's NGOs that are doing work there's ways in which you can volunteer and you know provide you know I mean even something just quite small like is actually still helping someone's life and you know I, I was recently back in Australia and I, I caught up with um, one Afghan refugee who was an unaccompanied minor when I, I, I met met him and he was on some of the, the, the first boats that I witnessed and you know, and I also had a moment where sometimes I was thinking, gosh, am I even making a difference here? Like, you know, like, you know, you still have those moments. Yeah. So you're, you're so caught up in it. And he said to me, you know, Michelle, like, it was just those moments where, you know, it was even just a conversation I had with you where you just gave me some hope. You said, you know, keep going like just keep going you're so strong like you're so brave like just keep going just you know you 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 can do this and he said those those like sentences were actually enough to hold someone together in that moment to go forward or completely go under you know that was you know I'm so glad you said that because I do think that it stops a lot of people is feeling mm. like I'm not going to be able to make a big enough difference, right? Mm. And that was one of the feelings that I remember having. I remember we walked into this um, community center that, for refugees when we were in uh, Berlin. And, you know, you're, we're sitting there and they prepared this like cute little lunch for us and they gave like yeah, they yeah. these presentations and were sharing their stories with us and yep. sharing about like, their process. And all of us were like a mess. We're like crying. We're just yeah. like, you know, and and our whole group was really like leaders and different founders and like people that, you know, um, from that have been like selected to kind of uh, come on this special trip. And all of us were just like, what, like, what, what can we do? Like mm. anything, like, what can we do? And the thing that we heard the most was share our stories. Absolutely. Share our stories. Yeah. And that was one of the things that just like, one, they were so grateful that we genuinely were, we just wanted to know, like we wanted to know about them. We wanted to know what they were, you know, what their struggles were. We wanted to know about where they came from and what they were doing. And you know, to share their stories. And so I think, you know, similar to what you were saying, and I believe this in general also about like any any sort of cause in the world, right? Yep. Is that we're all called to help at different, in different like stations, right? In different levels. And so, and even for someone like you, where you have helped on such a spectrum, right on such a, a mass spectrum where you know people are literally carrying your article as they're <laughs> as they're on their boat and then also you know in I don't even want to say smaller ways but in different ways different ways yeah you're you're being present with someone right you're giving them hope where you know I remember what at one point you know while we were working together you sent me this email we were talking about like stuff we were working on together or whatnot and then at the end of it you're like oh this is situations going on with the Afghan girls we have to pray for them we have to figure out you know what's going on and um on all levels there are so many levels even just being yep. like hey can we pray about this right now I like you know mm. you may not know like what to do about this but let's at least you know 
And I think that it's so important to, to acknowledge that all of those levels are important. And I believe that we're all divinely designed to help at all those different levels. Yeah, and I, I agree with that completely. And it's everyone has a, a role to play here. So, you know, like I said, my sole mission has been to write about this, these issues, advocate and, you know, and give hope. Um, but, you know, it's still important, you know, even the power of prayer in this situation, like people cannot forget how important that is. And there's been plenty of times where, you know, I've really prayed for an outcome for people that are going through something really really difficult so you know I think for for any of your listeners you know that are concerned about these issues and and you know feel like okay well I can't get involved like at that level but you know never underestimate the power of prayer I think that is really important and you know it's 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 always been said to me um you know by a lot of refugees even it's it's a reverse too right so they've said to me you know we pray for you we 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 pray for you and everything you're trying to do to help as as well and it's you know unfortunate but when you know people have told me their stories of boats sinking um you know uh, you know at in at on the sea you know the the one thing that holds people together during that moment is everyone is praying to god you know because yeah. that is that is what everyone feels is is you know, that's all that's left. And we know that, you know, it's it's the, all that is that left is between, yeah. you know, my relationship and God or the divine or whatnot. And, you know, so I see that happen and I've seen, you know, this, you know, without glamorizing refugees or whatnot, but I've seen that you know, a lot of times people are really connected to their spirituality through that process. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to talk about this process because mm. uh, the the journey of a refugee is something that it's truly it's truly a hero's journey it's truly Mm. incredible and i think so many people um don't even realize one so let's go from like the whole process because this is one Mm. of the things that was honestly the most like inspiring and mind-blowing to me when i learned about it was about one the situation that first caused I think one of the biggest misconceptions about refugees that lead to some of the kind of like negative policy enforcement I'm going to call it my opinion negative Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, is people thinking that oh these are just people from another country that are trying to like mooch on another country right when in reality when you think about how the the lengths like when, and, and I want you to, you talk about this on Christmas Island, but my point of reference obviously is um, Turkey to Lesbos. And there's like this, like little, this strain of water that they have to go yep. across and the Greek government can't help them, right? They have to make it across. And then once they land on the island, then they can help them with some law they have or whatnot. It's yep. awful. Um, and you realize that, these people are risking their lives. They risk their family lives, their families' lives. They, um, they lead full lives. Like I remember speaking mm. to a man that had left Afghanistan and he, he was telling us, he was like, I was like upper middle class, you know, like I had like a nice house. I had a good job. I had, you know, you know, nice cars. Like we had like a, this life and then like the government I think put a bounty on his head and he had to leave and he had to like sneak out to protect his family and then establish himself in like this new place so that then he could try to bring right and you don't even I mean I have stories that are far even worse than that that I don't even know if I want to say because they're so graphic and the violence of why people had to flee their country and um and then and then this journey that they take and then the assimilation and the humbleness of really trying like you were saying like and then and that just resonated so much with what I also experienced where they get there and they're like we want to learn about Australia (laughs) right like they genuinely it's just like it blows your mind so can you break it down a little bit why these refugees are moving. I know there's a multitude of reasons, but kind of the general reasons. And then 
the the process because when I learned about like how dangerous just the whole process and you talk about in the book too was like smugglers and you know it's not a journey anyone would go on flippantly exactly and I think that's the question you know you you have to ask yourselves why are people risking their lives people know the risks for example if I use seeking asylum and going but by a boat like what you've witnessed in, in Greece and you know what I've seen on Christmas Island and, and, and on Lampedusa off Sicily the first question is you know why are people risking their lives to get on this boat and I can tell you every asylum seeker knows that the stakes of dying are extremely high that people know that 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 is already a calculated risk and but as it's always been said to me by most asylum seekers I would rather you know risk my life trying and dying than not trying at all so I mean it, it is really unfortunate that that is you know the calculation that someone has to do so you know anyone that's getting on boats um that where they know they're probably very likelihood that they could drown um you know I think first paints a pretty good picture of how severe is the situation that they are leaving at the moment obviously we are experiencing you know some of an all-time high in in asylum and refugee crises with everything that's been happening in ukraine we had you know afghanistan uh, issues you know the fall of the, the the previous government um you know we've seen other things happening in places like ethiopia sudan you know it 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 is it, it is really the situation is really quite high in terms of mass migration and you know people seeking asylum um so to answer your question you know why are people leaving and I think you know we need to break it down the very basic which is you know an asylum seeker is someone you know that is obviously putting in a claim for refugee status and and what does it mean to be a refugee well it's to have a well-founded fear of persecution and that can relate to your race religion political you know circumstances you know these are it's, it's very well defined and I think the refugee convention the United Nations refugee convention it's actually you know one of the most important things that have happened historically the fact that countries around the world could welcome people to come settle in their country and give them safety and protection unfortunately we've seen over the years you know a toughening up of borders people saying well you know they can't come in they're jumping the queue they need to go and wait in these places for you know for to be taken by UNHCR and you know Cass, I've seen a multitude of situations in the last few years, for example. So obviously I've seen the boats arriving on places like Christmas Island and, and Sicily. I went to Poland recently to see what was happening there with the Ukraine crisis. And, you know, that, that is different again. And, you know, people are crossing the border and, and Polish people are taking these people into their homes. And, and you know, very different to, you know, what I've seen with seeking asylum in on in in the Mediterranean and then I've been to places like Ethiopia and I've been to UNHCR camps there you know I went to the border of Ethiopia and Somalia and there were camps there where people had been for 29 years in these protracted refugee situations people have been born there you know they've been there and now they're in their 20s now why I'm telling you this story is because they're all different refugee situations is one refugee more deserving of the other no no it's just the situation in that people do have a well-founded fear of persecution so when I hear things like people saying oh well you know they're really rich they shouldn't be allowed to come it's got nothing to do with wealth you know and no. you articulated that story of you know someone in Afghanistan who'd come from a middle class you know pretty good family whatnot um no one wants to leave their home no I think people forget that it's not the people just want to and you talk to a lot of refugees their their fondness and, and, and love also, of their country yeah they're leaving a lot of times it's not like they're leaving their home which first of all you're right and I love you talk about that in the book too it's like no like no one wants to leave their home this yeah. is not like a pleasure relocation yeah and most of them are leaving behind all of their possessions right all yeah. the things that they've worked for most of them are paying most of the money that they've had to try to even go on this journey, right? Yep. They're yep. really shedding everything for this opportunity to save themselves mm. and their family. And a lot exactly. of them are leaving behind 
like I, I not all of them, but some of the things that I noticed is sometimes they would leave behind like the wife and the kids if they felt like they were safe so that they would kind of take the trip by themselves. And sometimes it would be years before they'd be reunited. Oh. You know, we're talking in Australia, just, uh, you know, fortunately, the situation now, even though it's still unfolding, is for many years, people were on temporary protection visas in Australia that had come to Christmas Island. People have been waiting for nine years to actually be granted to become a refugee. And under the new new government that um, we just recently had elections in Australia, that they will do away with this temporary protection visa system and people will finally be given the right to stay. And, you know, I always saw some things, you know, through social media and whatnot, you know, during COVID where people were saying, oh, I haven't seen my family for a year or whatnot. And then, you know, some refugee advocates were like, well, what about some of these refugees? I haven't seen their family for 10 years, 12 years, you know? And so people are leaving this behind. And I saw it a lot with unaccompanied minors, particularly boys, Afghan boys, you know, back previously they were, you know, obviously they had to leave and, you know, they were seen as fighting age by the Taliban when we saw those migration flows. And, you know, they were leaving behind all of their family members, but their family would say, okay, I'm going to send my, my son abroad. You know, this is the best thing I can do for his future. And maybe one day he will be reunited with us. Yeah. And so, so, once someone makes the tough decision that they have to flee, that they're no longer safe in their home, how does that process begin? Can you walk us through? I know yeah. it's different for you each know, country. Sure it's, it's different for each country, but I, because I just want to, I just want to illustrate just exact like mm. exactly how wild this is. Yeah. This is not like oh, I'm gonna go get on a bus. This is not no. like, oh, I'm going to, you know, this is something that has to be like, it's a very, you know, kind of undercover process. Yeah. And I think that the, one of the, the most difficult situations for people is that they they also don't, there's no time frames around this. So people, depending on which country they've gone to, um, you know, they may put a, a claim for asylum depending on, you know, what country they've gone to or if they're in bordering countries at the moment, like places like Pakistan, um, next to Afghanistan, they're going to UNHCR and registering. Um, but, you know, I'm just receiving reports at the moment since everything that happened in Afghanistan and, you know, Pakistan has has housed many, many Afghan asylum seekers, refugees, you know, in the, the millions. You know, currently the situation there is, um, you know, people are not even, UNHCR hasn't even registered their cases yet. You know, we know this event happened last year in August and that's, you know, people they're not even in the so-called queue to even wait at the moment. There's been protests in Pakistan because by Afghans saying, well, look, can we at least register our case? How is somewhere to someone like the US or UK to take us? We're not even registered in the system yet. And that's by no fault of UNHCRs either. You know, they do great work and I'm not being critical of that, but I'm just showing that this is a really complex situation um, where people don't know what the future you know is going to reveal to them so people could be in you know these systems for years and years and years um, or they can be caught up in bureaucratic red tape in other western contexts I find happens a lot where they just cannot get an answer on their case yeah and you know even so that there is like the the physical risk of actually the traveling right most of them are traveling on these like lifeboats I remember one of the like we saw this like they called it the lifeboat graveyard in Lesbos of like Mm. after everybody came and then they leave their lifeboats and their life jackets and stuff these are not like these are like very modest like rubber boats (laughs) yeah right yeah these are and they're they're you know they're they're risking one drowning at sea right which is part of the the beautiful cover of your book is this you know this this photo and it it did it reminded me a lot of what some of the remnants of things that I saw is this image of them at sea you know seeking and then so they're already risking that like am I going to physically make it and then also with what you're talking about that was one of the other things I was 
you know, shocked to find out because I, I don't know, obviously I'm not anywhere near as well versed as you are, but um, one of the, the, the like things that was going on with that in Greece was also taking a while for them to get through the system is that until they're fully processed, they can't hold a regular job. So now you're waiting and trying to find like, how do I start making money so I can start creating a life for myself? And it is, it's like you're in this and thank God there are some places there's more like community centers and things that are helping them during that process. But that's, it's, it's awful. You could be years without having the ability to get a normal job. Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, it's people, you know, their livelihoods are being taken away on so many different levels from, you know, leaving their homelands to being stuck in, you know, this, this system for, you know, claiming refugee status and then being processed and not necessarily having a means to an income. And then I think also you, you can't forget in that it doesn't end there. So people do get refugee status and they start to rebuild their lives. But, you know, numerous times I saw what would happen with things like PTSD. You know, it's almost that climax, you know, and we've reached it. And yes, I'm okay, I'm a refugee and I can start my life. But it's not like it's like, yeah, okay, I can start. Like it's not. It's it's actually again, there's so many challenges, you know, of integrating into a new country. And a lot of people are starting at the bottom and having to work their way up again, you know, to 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 be fully functioning. Yeah, absolutely. The psychological aspect of it is huge. That was one of the things that we, um, I was able to sit in on a class. Um, the people that are, I guess, that I'm, I'm going to call them the rescue team, right? Yep. When um, the refugees come up on shore that kind of are able to kind of greet them, there's a very specific kind of method of how you greet them and kind of hold space for them and find out what they need. Um, dealing with the fact that it's such a delicate mental moment, right? And that that journey alone is so traumatic mm. that being able to gently, you know, help them process it and, mm. you know, be, so, be there in a way that you can hear them and hear what they need, but not be too affronting when they're in such a delicate, I mean, it is, it's a whole it's a whole thing when you think of you know really puts in perspective which I think is you know really important it really puts in perspective when you see what these people are willing to go through the journey that they embark on the resiliency in their spirit the you know humbleness that they have to start over again and this this survivor you know human spirit inside of you um it just shows you that you know we are far more capable than we even access on a regular basis yeah I I I do do agree with that and you know people have always said like why would you want to work in something in an area that's so miserable and sad and you know why get involved with that and I said well one you know how can I not get involved in this and two it's uh, you know if I've learned anything about you know human resilience and the human spirit I always said this is such a privilege for me to be able to work with these people to have met these people to have heard their stories that I've actually been able to play a role in their lives some way and they've played a role in mine and you know I think um we've got to remember there's a two-way process here as well you know it's 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 that you know it's through that giving and receiving and you know that there's this connection that that is born between us and and I think that just comes back to in you know innately we are human beings who are all connected in some way or shape or form and I think you know that's something the advice I would offer to people you know how can you find some connection with refugees you know how can you do that and I mean look there's plenty of organizations people can um, you know go and volunteer at for example or you know find ways to support Um, 
you know, like I said, like what happened with, with that letter writing program, you know, those people that were all writing to, to, to the people in immigration detention, I mean, they were just average people who just thought, you know, this is maybe something I should do. Yeah. So I think when people get, you know, a little hunch or a little gut feeling or something, oh, maybe I'd like to do that, go for it. You know, you just don't know what can come out of it. And, and also just that the fact that like having that, like you said, that like one, all relationships are learning experiences, yeah. right? For both parties. And I think having that, I've heard, a, I've heard a lot of stories of how having just those few kind of connections to people on the outside made all the difference and having an advocate in the process. And so many of these people, all of these people could use an advocate in their process, right? Could use someone on the other side that, you know, that could be a stand for them, right? Whether it's emotionally through supporting them in the letters or it's like in that, you know, that man's case from Sri Lanka of really mm. having someone that that cares enough to say, you know what, okay, I'm dealing with some awful, you know, the passing of my son right now. But you know what, I'm going to make sure, I'm not going to let this fall under the rug. I'm going to make sure someone else knows about this. Someone's taking care. Someone's paying attention to what's going on with this man. And I think that's something that is so, that all of us could do, right? Yeah. I, and I, you know, I always say to people, like, you know, when you're going through a difficult time, I find the best solution for, for me and I've said it to, to others is actually thinking about what else can I do to help someone else right now? Amen. And it, it works wonders. Amen. <laughs> I, always, always. I assure you, you know, if you actually flip it around and say, well, you know, can I help someone else right now? Yeah. It will get you out of that rut. Like it will always get you out of that rut. And so I think, and you know, there's nothing to lose there. There's only anything to gain, you know? So I think that's something else that people can sort of, you know, you know, translate into that experience as well is, you know, what can I do to help someone else right now? Yeah. I, I love that. What, so I imagine over, after all these years of working with asylum seekers, refugees, that you've learned a lot of spiritual lessons from this process and with them. What are some of the biggest, you know, lessons or ahas maybe that you've had from either individual experiences or just in general working with this community? I would say that everything I have done has always been well-intentioned I find whenever the intention behind this is is it's well-intentioned it's not necessarily like self-interested self-motivated it's well, there's always some sort of magic that <laughs> happens out of it I you know it's just like something will happen you know I, you know somehow I'll find myself going to this place I'll be able to find support for people so I think you know when we're really clear about what is your intention about what you're trying to do here I think that is um that 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 definitely plays a role in it um I think also it's also you know it's knowing your thresholds and your boundaries, I think is also really important. So I was asked this question recently during book launch in Australia, you know, how do we deal with the fatigue of this? And, and you know, the issue is, it's pretty tough. And, you know, they said, well, how do we deal with getting over the fatigue? And I've seen this happen, you know, particularly in refugee advocacy around burnout. And, you know, and, and I, I answered that question and I said, well, you know, it, it's also okay to take a step back. You know, I always knew my limits as well. So, you know, when I felt like I could no longer give hope to people and I was, that was always my 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 number one motivator, Cass, was how can I give hope here? And so when I started to feel, okay, I'm that starting to slip away a bit and I'm just starting to, you know, it doesn't energetically feel right. Well, this is the time where I need to take a step back and actually look after myself as well. And that is okay. You know, that's, I think people um, throw themselves into this work and then they get really burnt out. And, you know, then, you know, as we say, like you're of no use to anyone if you're of no use to, you know, yourself in this situation. So there's always that, um, that element, you know, I would say, but I think for me, it was definitely like 
always just listening to my gut and <laughs> my intuition yeah. on it. I can't explain it any other way, really. Yeah. And yeah. I think the lessons that you've learned while pursuing this work have mm. also then bled over to the other aspects of your life because yep. when you see in this context how when you go in it with like a pure heart and mm. you are prayerful and you know take your intuitive action and stuff magic happens as you said yep. right yep. and things kind of just align it's remind you that like that's actually how it gets to be yeah right? that that's actually exactly. how you know, it gets to be in, um, you know, I love what you said. It's, it's totally true about being able to have that, that boundary of being like, okay, what feels good? And then what is overextending? And I think that's in any, in anything in our life, right? Is being yep. able to, you are, we have to take care of ourselves, you know, in that basic nourishment way and, and, you know, get our sleep and, and take mm. our mental peace or whatever we need to do so that we yep. can show up with fresh ideas so that we can, mm. you know, be that light and we can be of service to, you know, whatever is in front of us. And then, yep. um, you know, lastly, I think one of the things that I know that you've brought up to me is how much this journey has reinforced for you the power of prayer. Yeah. And I know you have, um, would you share that, the story that you have, a specific, the specific story that happened kind of recently yeah. about just, because I think, you know, you're just a perfect example of like what, what I call like practical magic or prayer in action, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where it's like, I think a lot of times, you know, prayer's gotten like a bad a bad rap sometimes socially because people are like oh you're just praying you know and it's like prayer is really powerful and that's not to take away that like you pray and then if there isn't you know action to take you take that action too but I, I think prayer prayer shouldn't be discounted and, and you have some pretty incredible stories of, of prayer yeah, I I agree with that. It, and I think it is so important and people shouldn't discount that. You know, there was a situation, um, you know, where I had a friend who had been imprisoned in Afghanistan and, you know, it was really not clear when, when he was going to be released by the Taliban. And, you know, and it, it obviously was impacting on a number of people and his family. And, you know, it was something where I just said, I, you know, I have to keep praying for his outcome, that he will be okay, that he is going to be released, that he will be fine, that, you know, his family will be well taken care of. And, you know, and I had a number of other girlfriends who said to me, you know, is there anything we can do? Because I know this situation is really, you know, is quite traumatic for you right now too. And I said, please pray for them. You know, some, some friends said to me, you know, can I even have you got a photo or something you know would you mind sharing and you know then they were even meditating and praying on you know the outcome for my friend so that he would be released from the prison and you know and he was safely released and the Taliban let him go so I think you know we just you just can't underestimate how important that is and you know it was I was praying for his release so you know if you know, talk of, you know, I was manifesting that he would be <laughs> left, let out of the prison and he would be safe. And, you know, and I kept thinking about, you know, you know, I can't wait to receive that message from him that says, oh, or from his family saying, um, you know, I've, I've been released. You know, that's what I kept visualizing, yeah. you know, that feeling of like, okay, when I get this message, you know, that's how I'm going to feel so, you know, at peace for him and, and, and his family. So, you know, I think people just need to remember that it's, it's so, it's so critical. We're living through a really, really difficult time right now where, you know, millions of people are being displaced. So, you know, putting them in your prayer is is really really important Cass yeah it's bringing that awareness and I think you know the thing about prayer is that one I firmly believe that it works and that we're sending unseen forces to aid and mm. also it brings that awareness in our energy field right so that when we're praying whatever we're praying for whatever we're holding space for just like in anything that we're manifesting right it's like you create that 
intentional energy sphere so that there, if there is anything that needs to be done or can be done on the physical world, and sometimes it can't, right? Like in your case, but if there is something to be done, we'll be guided to it because we were in prayer about it. And Mm. I think that's, that's, you know, one of the beautiful things about prayer too, is that I think about it as not only me sending angels to aid, but I also think about it as me kind of like sending up like a flare and being like, hey, like if there's anything I can do, let me know because my human doesn't think there's anything I can do right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, let me know. Um, ah, Michelle, so beautiful. So beautiful. You are just, you're such a, a light and you're such an example um, of what it's what it is to be on mission and what it is to just keep following those callings and you know and and like you said that it's truly a two-way street not only are you doing a really beautiful thing for this community and this cause but also this this is clearly so nourishing and soul activating for you and enriches your life so much what is there any parting okay so two parting I'll give you two two parties just two one but (laughs) two parting things one um is there anything that you would say to someone that is is listening to this right now and it's like oh my gosh I wish I wish I could be as lit up and called um towards anything um the way that she's called towards this mission what would you say to them and then secondly what as people leave this podcast and we're posting it on world refugee day what what was your hope that people leave with whether it's knowing whether it's actions they can take so yeah okay so the first question that you asked about you know the first part you know what what should people you know if they how to deal with the calling part I think you know have some fun with it (laughs) don't put so much pressure on yourself so you know if there is that you know little feeling and you know that they're sometimes they're not so little they become big (laughs) things you know that oh you know maybe I have I know about that organization in my community that is you know helping newly arrived refugees settle in and I'm kind of curious about that go check it out like you don't have to say oh my god I'm going to hear all these terrible stories and I don't know what I'm you know like just go check it out like just play with that and see how you feel with with this you know and then the second part you know that you've asked me is um you know what the key takeaway I think two things for me on that um one you know what I hope for it's always is about how can we humanize this issue this is a human story this is not something that just happens to people out there these people are someone's brother someone's sister someone's child you know they're human stories where you know if people were really able to just break it down to us everyone wants the same thing here um, as as you and I do. We want safety and we want protection. And so I think when you can just look at it like that from the human element, that that that's really important. Um, and then, you know, the third thing for me, just to add to it, um, you know, about the book itself, you know, it, the book, um, it was, the, the foreword is written by Khalid Hosseini, which many people would know about the, the book, The Kite Runner, and he was one of my favourite authors. And, you know, I also was felt very, very privileged that, um, that you know, that I was able to give 100% of the book royalties to go to Khalid Hosseini's foundation to help people in, in Afghanistan, you know, to help the current humanitarian crisis. Two million kids are about to starve to death there. And I felt like, you know, this book, became like a vessel you know a channel to do other things beyond just being a book um and it's just activated so many different things so I think you know definitely definitely people they're buying the book they're not only just reading and learning about that they're actually being able to help alleviate the situation in Afghanistan so I think that that that's really key to me and you know and part of my sole mission even going forward is trying to do more um you know what I can for that country I love that. I love that. And we'll put the link right below so that anybody that's listening can order the book. And I love that how their book is also a donation 
Um, that's so beautiful how you did it. And the book is, you know, if you are interested in our conversation today, you're going to absolutely love this book. Um, it really goes through not only the history of Christmas Island, but it goes through, you know, Michelle's involvement in it and the journey of refugees. And you just learn so much. I mean, this is a great place to start. If you're interested and you're like, okay, I just want to learn a lot about like what is going on because even though the book really focuses on the situation in Christmas Island, it is just such an example of what's going on in different places too. And, and you really get to see the dynamic between the asylum seekers and the locals. And it's just, it's, it's just really, it's really beautiful. And it's very thorough around, it's a great place to start really learning about what's going on and what these people are really up against and what the conditions really are and, and this whole dynamic. And I can't recommend it enough. And I love that, you know, by buying the book, you're also making donations. So this is a really beautiful example, I think, of what Michelle's um, message that I love so much and highly endorse <laughs> is just, you know, kind of l let it be easy, let it like, let it be fun you know, and this could be a great place to start and then look up, you know, if there's like a local place near you, or if you're going on a trip, is there a refugee center, but the book is a great place to start learning about that and to um, start getting involved. So thank you. It's hope, solidarity, solidarity and death at the Australian border. And all of the info is below. And I'll include Michelle's um, Instagram and website and everything as well. And if there are any other links that I should include, Michelle, she'll let me know. So you'll have all of your resources um, below. Thank you so much for being on and just for being you because you're absolutely incredible. <laughs> Thanks so much, Cass. I've loved this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.